KYW Original Podcasts. It's kind of interesting how this idea got started, Charlotte. I remember you coming to me with this. Right. So Greg Glenn, he has been a news production assistant here for years. And he approached me one day and he told me that he's friends with a funeral director. His name is Nick Wren. He works at a few different funeral homes in South Jersey. Uh, When I called him to see if he would be interested in something like this, he said, of course. One thing he told me was about 10 or 15 years ago, he started giving tours of the funeral home to local students. This kind of started when he was talking to a teacher and the class was studying grief. And they thought they could give students the concept of what a funeral home is actually like and what happens there. Nick liked the tour so much that he kept doing them. And then something changed. This area, the country as a whole, was hit hard by the opioid epidemic. And his tour started changing, too. In the midst of a drug addiction crisis, a South Jersey funeral director is giving tours to students to try to keep them off his table. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. So Charlotte and I arrived there and Nick ran the funeral director, opened the door and welcomed us inside. And then we walked in and his apprentice, Tony Macarella, joined us with her dog. Very cute dog. <laughs> Uh, That was really interesting to see how they're going to make that dog into a possible service dog for the funeral homes. I think, you know, it would obviously bring a lot of joy to the people going to the funerals, but also the funeral directors. Yeah, because they need that emotional support, too. They see a lot. All right. Yeah. So we're recording. Okay. Yeah. So I just want to start. We'll start with the beginning. We're at the um, we're at the Sweeney Funeral Home in Burlington County. It's in South Jersey. And I'm with Nick. Nick, can you tell Nick Wren? And what is your position here? What do you do? I'm a funeral director, licensed funeral director. And I do assist the uh, Daly family that owns Sweeney Funeral Homes of Riverside and uh, Beverly. Okay. Um, How long have you been doing this? Oh, gosh. I started in, while I was in high school in 1982 and uh, have been doing consistently since. And why did you get into it? I had the same desire that uh, Tony has. I wanted to help people. I saw it as a uh, opportunity to reach out to people in a time that they were suffering, and I wanted to make it easier. And I know I sound all serious, but I'm, I'm known for telling jokes and, and trying to keep the funeral light. Um, and I explained to people... After I meet with them, I said, you know, I, I realize, you know, the severity of what's happened, but you're meeting with a stranger. I'm asking you a lot of important information and personal information, and I want you to feel comfortable with me. And usually by the time I get done in the funeral, we've we've not just been a funeral director and a family. We've become connected. It's kind of funny. I started out very young. I was in high school and decided after the death of my grandmother and another friend that had passed away that I wanted to become a funeral director. And my reason for it was my grandmother was at a funeral home in the city uh, that was not very compassionate. And our neighbor had passed away, and we went to help her husband, my mother and I, and the funeral director I went to was very compassionate. And I came out of it and said, you know what? 
I'd like to be that compassionate funeral director. You know, that was a pleasant experience versus a very cold experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started in high school, and it took me a little bit to get used to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, thankfully I had good training and funeral directors that were really good in, in instructing me. And I was able to adapt to it. And um, it's one of those things I always say, if you know, if, if you don't like this business, you can't stay in it. The funeral home was in an old, looked like it was in an old Victorian home, really well kept. It looked very, frankly, inviting. Yeah. This funeral home, open floor plan, I think that's the point, um, so that it's not a uniform sit down. The way that they do funerals is more open. You can kind of walk around and uh, celebrate the person's life. Could you start by taking us on a little bit of a tour? I know you bring high school students through here, so we... Sure. This okay. the, the Sweeney funeral homes are set up different than uh, many of the funeral homes in the area. They're set up for life celebration. As you can see, the seats are around the room, um, and people are invited to gather more and to encourage sharing. Um, sometimes they'll go around the room and basically pass the mic to everyone and say, you know, share something with us about the person so that the, the person's life is not just a cold, blank funeral anymore. Yeah, or do you know what? Do you, would you mind taking us into the embalming room? Is yeah. that okay? Sure. Okay. Now, I do have to uh, let you know that legally we can offer you all the protective equipment. There isn't a deceased in here right now, but you okay. do have the option of... Um, masks, gloves, aprons, anything you'd like. I don't plan on touching anything. Or <laughs> that's my that's my legal. Disclosure. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah. And then we kind of we got to the the back end of the funeral home because that's where he ends up with the kids. It's the last stop on the tour. I know there's light switch. <laughs> and we found ourselves in this teeny, frigid cold back room with an ancient metal embalming table on it this is the uh, the actual table where the embalming takes place um the machine that you see is the embalming machine i have to say this equipment looks like it's been here since the beginning it's uh it's a little uh, bit old but it never gets outdated okay so the uh, most funeral homes are using uh, embalming tables and things that are probably just shy of 100 years old this one looks like it. I mean, I'm looking at what looks like a white enamel table with big wheels. Not to use a poor expression, but it's like a cast iron bathtub. Mm -hmm. That's the consistency of the construction of it. Okay. And uh, the uh, instruments you can see behind Tony. There's instruments for uh, the various processes of the embalming. I would think that would make an impression on the kids that you bring in here. Most of them are looking around the room and their, their questions are, well, what's that? What's that? What's this used for? And uh, usually that's the fun part because uh, I have a little fun with them too. And I tease them like, you know, when the group comes in, I'll say, you know, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate how to do an embalming. Um, I need one volunteer who won't be missed. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's so funny because they're kind of like looking, but they're not really paying attention. So there's always one or two hands that go up. And I'm like, you didn't hear the whole statement, did you? <laughs> so like I guess that I try to keep it light for them. But the, uh, the reality of it is, and that's why I finish it, is that this is a cold porcelain table. And if they are going to get involved in drugs, there's the greatest possibility that they're going to end up on it. You want to see yourself here. Exactly. So I Your hope that that, that brings some reality to them. Um, do, you, do you 
a description of any other. We have enough of the. I think so. Okay. okay. Thank you. We can go back into a warmer room. <laughs> <laughs> Traditionally, all funeral homes always kept their preparation rooms cold. <laughs> it's the the uh, concept of refrigeration. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, you know what? Because I think a lot of us have that image of the funeral director as a serious man or woman, very somber. And he was really the exact opposite of that. And like a guy like that makes the perfect funeral director. I think one of the things that um, I like to express is that we're, we're not the undertakers of the morticians anymore. <laughs> you know, for years, the the idea of uh, Digger Odell and the, the uh, us wearing black suits and uh, being very somber all the time. Uh, we're humans and we're normal people. And our job is to be here to help people. Uh, we're not the enemy. I know most people don't want to see us. We're kind of right up there with the dentists. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're really here. And, and the the most we can offer is to be compassionate to people. And um, as the funeral homes evolve, I think that we've had to adapt as funeral directors. Um, We've had to adapt to the changes in society, to millennials, to the baby boomers. And um, we're not uh, dinosaurs. We don't want to fade away because it's still the celebration of a person's life in a funeral is still a very important thing in the respect for the deceased. So we're moving towards a new generation and as well as taking care of families with you know, situations that we didn't deal with, such as the drug overdoses you know, that weren't common. And uh, the idea of being able to refer people if they do need counseling afterwards. So it's, uh, it's a, the business is adapting, thankfully. When Nick did get into the funeral directing business, he never expected overdoses to be as much of his clientele as it is now. When he got in, he thought... You know, it's going to be the grandparents, the cancer patients, people who have had illnesses. Nick, I don't know if you can put a number on this, but at this point in the epidemic, how many overdose victims do come through here in a week or a month? I mean, on an average funeral home, I'd say probably possibly up to 30% of the business now is from overdose cases. It's uh, it's definitely, like I said, things have changed so much since the time that I started. And um, just uh, the whole dynamics of the funeral have changed because of it. And dealing with so many young people and different situations. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm guesstimating that's probably a, a good average. Can you tell me how things have changed in the past 10 or 15 years? There is a tremendous change, and uh, Tony is going to see even more changes. I walked into a business um, back in the 80s that hadn't really evolved since probably the 1930s. Uh, Things hadn't changed much. Funerals were very traditional. Uh, Cremation was just sort of gaining some popularity in this region. And the first drug death, I actually remember the actual first overdose, I remember, was the, the bad kid. He was the you know the guy in high school that was always in trouble and the party guy and um, you know I'll, I'll never forget it because that's you know he was at a party and he overdosed and you know we kind of you looked at him and you said well you know he was 
kind of the the uh, the bad boy all the time, so you could figure it. But it wasn't common. I mean, if you had an overdose, it was an accidental overdose where you know someone took too much of something by accident, a prescription drug or something, um, or a suicide. It, it wasn't uh, like it is today, where it just occurs in groups. What is it like today? Um, I'll give you my best example, and I'm actually using something from one of the medical examiner's offices, workers. And that was a few years ago um, when one of the local hospitals had 40-some cases that came in in one weekend of people who had overdosed. Um, I believe 13 were dead on arrival at the hospital. And the rest of the cases, not everyone survived the weekend. And the medical examiner's office gets that frequently when the, um, and I'll call them the bad drugs, which are basically your fentanyl, heavy fentanyl uh, lace drugs, or the drugs that are really more pure and a little too strong for people. Uh, When they hit the streets, we'll see several cases come in in one week. And at one point I had a floating business where I serviced 21 different funeral homes. And uh, in one month's time, and this was many years back, I made $15,000 in one month going funeral home to funeral home, doing the preparations on the uh, drug deaths. And uh, it was a nonstop month, and uh, that's just taking care of the decedents that were being prepared and embalmed, not including people that were just being cremated. So I can't even imagine what the death rate was that month. What do you see now coming through the doors here? Who are these people who are dying of these overdoses? They're everyone. They're not just the, the young people. I've seen drug overdoses up to age-wise. So far, the oldest I know of was a 79-year-old man. That really struck me. It's not just young people anymore. It is young people. It is middle-aged people. It is even, he told us this heartbreaking story where a 90-year-old woman lost her 70-year-old son to a drug overdose. It's affecting families from every lifestyle. It's the college-educated families. It's the, you know, not just lower-income families, but it's your next-door neighbor. It's your friends. It's professional people, people who own businesses and people who function. I tend to see more, actually, um, cases in more wealthy areas where the that tends to be the young people because they have the access to the money they get involved with drugs it goes from well percocets you know to heroin because heroin is easily accessible and it's cheap and then once they try heroin it seems like that first time it's all over like there is no breaking the addiction Are people becoming more open about it, though? Are people, instead of hiding it, do you think that people are becoming more open about what's happened? Oh, definitely. I think that people have realized that it is an epidemic. You know, the the stigma of it is not where it used to be. I think that people are accepting the fact that people have addiction and that without help, there is no, well, there is no real cure for addiction. It's it's basically just managing it, Mm -hmm. same as alcoholism. If you're an alcoholic, you're still always an alcoholic, even if you don't drink. You still always have to stay away from alcohol. And it's the same thing with drug addiction. So I think people, though, are more accepting to the fact that it's not the the junkie on the street anymore. Charlotte and I were talking on the way up here. She said she had been to a funeral where there was an addiction specialist at the funeral, and there were pamphlets being handed out. 
That's actually, I admire whichever funeral home did that because that's an excellent idea. Because oftentimes we see someone will die from a drug addiction, their friends will go out and they'll use right after the funeral in sort of like tribute to. And uh, it's hard to believe that they can attend a funeral and then walk out the door and do that. But that it has no impact on them. Exactly. Seeing their friend in a casket. And I think that the thing is that uh, the people with the addictions don't realize how much they affect the people around them and how much their loss is going to affect the people around them. Uh, a parent is never the same. Nick told us his daughter works at the other end of it. She is an addiction specialist, I guess you could say, where she tries to help people get into rehab. So it's like they're on the opposite ends of this epidemic. She tries to keep them out of her father's store. She's individually working now with people who want to get into rehabs. Um, Her job is to place them into a rehab. And I can't say that she loves her job because it's very difficult. Uh, The problem is, is that uh, if you're looking to go into a rehab in December, most of the state funding is gone. These rehab facilities that would sometimes take you on Medicaid or whatever, um, they don't have any openings left. And I've been told by people who do this that, well, wait until January. Well, if you can get through December and into January, you're fine. But what if you can't? So um, her job is to find an opening somewhere for them. And unfortunately, there's not enough rehabs to accommodate everyone. And the issue of insurance is a big issue because someone who does want help gets to a rehab and they find out that, well, they don't have insurance, so they can't take them. Or you're presented with a program, as I was trying to get someone into, where the program sounded great. It was a uh, three-week program and um, intensive rehab, and it sounded perfect, except for the fact that the end result was it was $10,000 a week. And when I said, well, that person doesn't have that type of money, well, can they borrow from family members? And if you've ever known anyone who has a drug addiction, by the time they get done, their families are usually broke. Um, They've stolen from them. They've taken cash. They've taken jewelry. Um, If the family tries to keep them from going to jail, usually they've spent a ton of money in uh, legal fees. So by the time they get done, the family usually doesn't have any accessible cash to pay for a program like that. So that's really for the very few fortunate people that can afford that. I don't think most people realize that. I think most people think if you need help, you can get help. Yeah, it's much more difficult than that. Have you had any students who have been on your tours end up here? Not yet. Um, thankfully, um, I mean, friends, a lot of um, a lot of our own personal um, families that we know and have grown up with. I mean, their their children have died from overdoses. Um, parents have died from overdoses, and uh, I was just reflecting. Tony was telling a story if I can defer to her for a moment about a uh, young man. So Tony told us this story that I think Charlotte and I were both kind of fighting back tears. It was so heartbreaking. Just how they see the different people in the family who have addiction. We had a mother passed away in Kensington. Her son, I want to say, was 19 years old. He also lost his father to an overdose and... Unfortunately, him and his grandmother and his mom's sister had to come in and make the arrangements. 
and the son was the one doing the majority of the arrangements. At 19. At 19 years old. And it's hard to see a young kid have to do that for his parents. Yeah, not one, but both. Right. And now him and his brother are left without a mom and a dad. How old was his brother? His brother, I think, is 13 years old. Oh, my goodness. Thankfully, they have each other, but now they're going to live the rest of their lives without their parents. You're just so heartbroken for those two boys. It's almost like they're learning together. Like Nick has been in the business for so long, but he's still learning about it and learning about how to deal with what's changing. And you have Tony who is coming into this knowing full well about the opioid epidemic and who it's affecting and how many people it's affecting. And she's going to be in it for, you know, who knows how long. And she's she's another one. Like she was just very warm, friendly, just a, just a really sweet young woman. How do you get used to doing this? Um, for me, it was when my uncle passed away. And Nick actually knew my uncle very well and did his service. And that was a really hard time for me. But knowing the care that he was in and not even knowing that I would end up with Nick 15 years later really made me know that this is what I'm meant to do. It's tough. And I realize that I'm headed probably to the last 10 years of my career. And I hope that Tony doesn't have to see anything getting worse than what it is right now. But, uh, you know, I met with a family one day whose son was 26 years old and didn't wake up in the morning. And the parents and the sister had no idea that he was using drugs. And it has nothing to do with the the parents or the family or the spouse. Uh, One of the things they'll tell you if you go to a uh, meeting for a support group like Naranon is that there's the three C's. You didn't cause it. You can't change it, and you can't cure it. And it's true. Do you feel it takes a certain amount of courage to step into that every day to help people at the worst time of their lives? Oh, believe me, it's uh, some days you just, you know, you get up in the morning, and I put my tie on, and I'm staring at myself in the mirror saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be there today. But, um, you know, the important part is that, you know, it's a calling to many people, and um, you know, I feel that in some small way, if uh, by the time I finish my career, if I've helped a handful of people, then I've been successful. One of the things that I think Charlotte and I both thought about was the emotional toll that this has got to take on them, dealing with these tragedies day in and day out. It's what you do every single day. And I really appreciated how open they were about how they take care of their own mental health and their own emotional health so they can then take care of other people who need them. I think that is the way that, you know, we're kind of evolving as humans, that you can be open about going to therapy and them being very open about therapy and everything was really important. Well, um, I personally go to a life coach and, uh, that helps me to kind of vent. Um, and my doctor said to me, you know, I think you may have a touch of PTSD. And I looked at her and I said, oh, no kidding. <laughs> and she said to me, do you get flashbacks? 
And I said, you know, I'm picturing the movie where suddenly I'm transported back in time to a scene or something. I'm like, no, I don't get flashbacks. And then I realized um, that we all do get flashbacks. You never forget. I drive past a certain location, and I remember the little girl who was hit by a car and died at that location, and I still see her in my mind. And we never forget. And some families stick with you through life, and you become friends with them, and uh, you share in their, their happiness afterwards. And that's part of the, the whole joy and the part that keeps me going in this business is the nice people that I meet. And uh, I've made a lot of good friends and uh, relationships through this business, and that's the part that keeps me going. Uh, if a funeral director stops and really thinks about it, um, yeah, you can end up in a severe state of depression. We're, we're human. And uh, we, we don't stop seeing what we're seeing, and we don't stop uh, feeling. Um, a good friend of mine passed away, and uh, I, uh, you know, he was an elderly gentleman, but I thought of him closer than my own grandfather. And when he died, all I wanted to do was make him look like he always did and make sure that his wife could see him the way that she you know, knew him. And that's how I got through it, was focusing on doing things so that the family could have what they needed. Yeah, I would think sometimes you just want to go home and cry. I've I've done it. I've gone home and I've cried to my mom and I said, Mom, I can't believe what I saw today and I can't imagine what this family's going through and I'm so lucky that I get to come home to you. I've walked out and walked into this other room during a service a couple weeks ago because listening to the woman speak about her husband just broke my heart. But at the end of it, I knew, wow, she was able to view him and see him looking the way he he looked when she remembered him or when he was alive. And that really is what helps me keep going. Tony, what about you? When I asked that question about getting grief counseling and kind of help processing this. I do see a therapist as well. And I think if I didn't have her, I would probably struggle a little bit with everything that I see. But I also have a really good support system. And I know that I have Nick, who I can talk to about anything. Also, Pat, who is my preceptor. I'm able to talk to him about anything that may bother me. And it really does help. And I think that people should not look at that as a stigma either, because it is okay to talk to someone if you feel as though you need it. The thing I'm going to remember is how much they both care. They truly, genuinely, sincerely care about the people who come through their doors. They both said that that they wanted to offer not just the burial services, but the emotional support. And that that made an impression on me. One thing that I learned from them is, I mean, I just, next time I go to a funeral, I'm going to ask how the funeral director is. I think that's something that, you know, you don't think about. They greet you at the door. They're like, how are you? Do you need your jacket? Cards over here. Sign your name. Like, I'm serious. Next time I go, I'm going to be like, how are you? KYW In-Depth is produced by Charlotte Reese. Our production coordinator is Ali Amato. Top Rickard is the executive producer of KYW Original Podcasts. I'm Carol McKenzie. Make sure to subscribe to KYW In-Depth and help us get the word out by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week.